0: Welcome to the Making Sense Podcast. This is Sam Harris. Okay, no housekeeping today. Today I'm presenting a conversation I had with Steven Lawrence, who is a Belgian neuroscientist and neurologist. He has a clinical practice as well. And he's engaged in a lot of fascinating research which we don't actually talk about. That will be left for a future conversation. This time around, he wanted to interview me for a book he's doing, and he wanted to talk about meditation. And as the conversation got into some interesting detail, I thought many of you would like to hear it. So this is me being interviewed about meditation, what it is and why one would do it, how it can help us understand the mind scientifically, and the ways in which it can't. And now I bring you Stephen Lawrence. I am here with Stephen Lares. Stephen, nice to meet you.
1: Nice to meet you, Sam.
0: So, Stephen, you're working on a book and uh, you wanted to talk about meditation and consciousness and related things. And so I'm happy to do it and, and happy to go
1: wherever you want to lead. Thank you for that. Yes, indeed. I actually wrote a book. I was invited to do so by a Flemish small publishing company. And it uh, is about my personal experience and then as a neuroscientist, how we studied the brain of these Buddhist monks and how as a neurologist, I now actually prescribe meditation. Mm. And it turned out to do very well. It was then translated in French and, and other languages. And now it, it's coming out in, in English. And so I'm very, very happy to Have your testimony and 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 how, when, and why you started to meditate. Nice. Just so my
0: listeners know. So you're a you're a neuroscientist and a neurologist. So you 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 have clinical practice now, or you're you're in your hospital.
1: Yes, right. I'm Mm -hmm. in in uh, the University Hospital of Liège. I'm uh, an MD, a neurologist. Our area of expertise actually is the damaged brain. So Mm. I created the coma science group and now had the uh, GIGA consciousness research unit where we try then from a scientific point of view, basically to understand human consciousness, which as you know, is uh, one of the biggest mysteries for science to solve. And, And we do that not only by looking at patients who have a severe acquired brain damage after trauma or hemorrhage or survivors of cardiac arrest. So so that's coma and related states, also near-death experiences. Mm. But then we also have a lab looking at what happens in your brain and mind when you are anesthetized, when you're giving these narcotic drugs or psychedelic drugs, for that matter. And finally, we have a strong tradition here and a whole lab looking at hypnosis and its medical use. We have over 10,000 patients who had surgeries, like taking out your turret or a tumor in the breast, where anywhere you would have general anesthesia or pharmacological coma. But here people are uh, undergoing this intervention while basically thinking about their holidays and in this uh, hypnotic state. Wow. You've had thousands of people have surgery without anesthesia under hypnosis yes, yes, wow. so this is uh, a wonderful woman who's called uh, Marie-Lise Femoville, who's an anesthesiologist and she, she's really a pioneer who introduced hypnosis and and as you know, this is you know what we know from from television and and theater, uh, you know doing tricks, but it's also something that illustrates, I think, again, the power of the mind and and how. As she has she uh, shown, you can use this in, in the uh, operating room during surgery, but also now in the pain clinic. So um, yeah, that, that's uh, what we do with the team. But talking about meditation for me is, is something I, it's out of my comfort zone. It's not something that I, you know, would have predicted uh, 20 years ago.
0: Yeah, well, so, so I'm happy to get into it with you. So I think your your first question was how I got into it, and um, it was, in my case, and this is really not unusual, my interest was first precipitated by a, a drug experience. In my case, it was MDMA, otherwise known as ecstasy, and uh, I think I was 18, and uh, I had an experience there which was not what's The the all too common one now. I wasn't I wasn't at a rave or a party. It wasn't really a recreational use of of that drug. I I took it knowing its potential to reveal something interesting about the nature of my mind, and I I took it very much in the spirit of investigating my mind and and seeing what transformative experiences might be on the other side of my my ordinary waking consciousness. And so the experience itself wasn't so directly relevant to what what I later came to consider the true purpose of meditation but it revealed for me the the fact that it was possible to have a very different experience of of myself and the world and and my my sense of my being in the world and just it was possible to have a much better life than i was going to have by just living out the the implications of my own conditioning and Tendencies at that point, so it set me on this path of self inquiry, really, and where I then, you know, explicitly studied techniques of meditation to try to explore the the landscape of mind further, you know, directly through through introspection. And I, you know, I've taken other psychedelics since, and I, you know, and so psychedelics are, have been a part of this, but they are separable. I mean, perhaps you want to talk about that, but there, it was. There's no question that. But for that initial experience, it seems pretty likely that that I may never have grown interested in in meditation or anything like it
1: so the the the, the when was you were eighteen years old mm-hmm. curious and then taking these drugs to kind of explore changes in in, in self perception and then and then you turned to meditation and and what kinds of meditation did did you try
0: i had been given a book by ramdas who originally was named richard alpert and he he was along with timothy leary uh, led some of those initial experiments at harvard in the 60s studying lsd and and was also fired from harvard along with tim leary for their um, their misadventures in in handing out lsd to all comers he then he you know many people know his story. He went to India. He met his teacher. He came back in with a very long beard and in a dress, calling himself Ramdas. And he then was a kind of spiritual teacher for many many years. He he only recently died. And so this was around this was eighty seven. I sat my first meditation retreat with him, and uh, there he he was teaching. An eclectic mix of practices. I mean, he was, it was really a kind of buffet of spirituality. But part of it was Buddhist meditation, in particular, Vipassana or mindfulness meditation. And that was the practice I most connected with on that retreat. And then I went on to sit, you know, explicitly Buddhist Vipassana retreats, you know, in silence after that and spent a lot of time studying with uh, my my friend joseph goldstein you know who was one of my first vipassana teachers and sat with his teacher uh saidha upandita burmese meditation master and then eventually migrated away from strict vipassana for some reasons i i think we'll probably talk about just the the, the logic of the practice and the kind of goal seeking that was built into it eventually seemed mistaken to me, or at least unnecessary, and and also a source of, you know, a fair amount of striving and psychological suffering. And then I connected with, you know, so-called non-dual practices, both within and, and outside of Buddhism. And that did change, it really did significantly shift my approach to meditation, but that took a few years to happen. So there were there were several years there where I was Mostly, never exclusively, but certainly mostly practicing, you know what people in the West know as mindfulness now, but you know very much under a kind of Burmese Theravada Buddhist influence, and uh, then migrated to the Tibetan practice of Dzogchen, but also influenced by some teachers and teachings I encountered outside of Buddhism, and um, yeah, and so all of that uh, during my twenties that absorbed a fair amount of time i spent about 2 years on silent retreat uh in the in the decade of my 20s and had dropped out of school and and you know wasn't quite sure how i was going to integrate all of these things and then only after that decade did i return to school and get a phd in neuroscience and begin to get all of my my interests aligned and it's it's, it's taken some time but you know n- now i'm in a position to have the kinds of conversations i want to have about The nature of the mind and what can be understood about it or not based on first-person methods like meditation
1: wow so how would you define these non-dual practices and and how they differ differ from from mindfulness
0: i think it's best understood certainly by anyone who has tried to meditate by describing the, you know, the usual starting point for the practice of meditation. So someone decides they they want to meditate and they're taught a method, and this, this can be mindfulness, this, this can be, you know, some other method like transcendental meditation, you know, mantra meditation, could be a visualization practice, it can be any use of their attention. But most of us start that project from a, a specific point of view. I mean, people Tend to close their eyes. And, you know, if it's ordinary mindfulness practice, they might be told to focus on the breath. And so if you close your eyes and you try to pay attention to your breath, most people will feel that their consciousness, their awareness is a kind of a locus of, an, of attention in the head. They're paying attention from someplace and it's very likely in their head, behind their eyes. And they can aim their attention at the object of meditation. So if they're aiming their attention at the breath, whether, you know, at the tip of the nose or in the, the rising and falling of their chest or abdomen, there's a sense of being a subject in the head that can now strategically pay attention to something. And of course, the, the real obstacle to doing this successfully is distraction, you're getting lost in thought. And so thoughts are continually arising, and you're getting pulled away from the object of meditation, and then you bring your attention back to the breath, or to sounds, or to a visualization, or, or, or a mantra, whatever you're focusing on. And as concentration builds, this can become more and more successful, right? So you can actually let attention can rest on the object of meditation for longer periods of time. And if you're practicing mindfulness, you can get good enough so that you can even notice thoughts arising as objects in consciousness rather than just be merely taken away by them in each moment. And uh, many interesting changes in one's states of mind and, and emotion can happen here. But if you're practicing dualistically, it more or less always feels like there's a meditator, there's a subject. Who is paying attention? There's the subject, which is you know, the, the source of awareness itself, and then there's the object of awareness, whether it's the breath or a sound or whatever. And that point of view, that duality, that subject object perception is an illusion. I mean, that, and it is the primary illusion that meditation is designed to cut through. And if you're practicing really well in this dualistic way, That will occasionally happen, and it may happen a fair amount. It can happen if you go on retreat and you do nothing but meditate for 12 to 18 hours a day, and and your mindfulness gets very continuous and effortless. You can find that this subject-object distance collapses again and again and again, and so you'll you'll hear a sound, for instance, and in that brief moment of just the, the impingement of the sound on your eardrum you might notice that there is no sense of one who is hearing the sound. There's just hearing. There's no, there's no you, you know, you in the head listening to a bird out there. There's just this ineffable appearance of hearing that is unified. The subject drops away, and the object drops away, really, and there's just kind of the unity of, of knowing and, and its appearances. But again, it, it's haphazard. You don't have any control over it when it stops happening. You're left thinking oh that was that was interesting. How, how do I get back to that And it seems under that way of practicing that the only way back to that is to once again summon this heroic level of concentration and continuity of mindfulness and um, what non-dual paths of practice have understood is that there really is a, a, a fundamental illusion to cut through there. It really is not the case that you need Massive sustained concentration to get to this experience of, of unity uh, or non duality. In fact, it's already the case in every moment of consciousness. I mean, consciousness itself doesn't feel like a, a center in the head, it doesn't feel like a spotlight of attention being aimed at its objects. There is no self in the head or, or, or thinker of thoughts. There's just this open condition in which everything is appearing and it can be recognized as such directly. And so it's that that recognition that really is the is the starting point of non-dual practice, a practice like zogchen. And and really you can't begin practicing it until you recognize that, that this is the way consciousness already is. But once you do, then your your mindfulness becomes synonymous with that recognition. So what you become mindful of thereafter is not the breath or sounds or anything else per se, though you may in fact be aware of the breath or sounds or whatever happens to be appearing. What you become mindful of is that there's no subject in the middle of consciousness. The practice itself becomes simply familiarizing yourself with this intrinsic property of consciousness that you basically have spent every moment of your life overlooking, you know, prior to learning how to practice in that way. And so that, that is the difference. I mean, Again, it's somewhat paradoxical to talk about and can be confusing to many people, but I think most people realize that, you know, whether they're trying to meditate or not, they do feel like a subject. They don't feel identical to their experience. They feel like they're at the center of their experience they're having an experience they're appropriating it from a place in the head and that's the central illusion that is cut through in non-dual practice
1: thanks so so we briefly discussed the when and the how and and you mentioned the the, the why uh, curiosity as i understood and also mentioned to 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 try and live a better life can you say a little bit more why you continue to to meditate and and what are your current favorite exercises?
0: well so so the why there are really two whys which can be more or less important for people. I mean the most common why, though the why that is certainly advocated by the Buddhist tradition generally isn't really intellectual curiosity. it's much more a matter of overcoming suffering. We all feel unhappy to one or another degree in our lives. Uh, it's not to say that happiness doesn't come, but it also goes. You just can't stay joyful all the time. And if you just wait long enough, you'll feel frustrated and annoyed and angry and sad and fearful. And, and just this there's, there's a, a lot of psychological pain that most of us experience fairly regularly. And meditation is offered as a as a method of having some fundamental insights into that process such that you don't keep suffering to the same degree and and in all the ordinary ways. And it, it certainly holds out the promise that it might be possible in some sense not to suffer at all, to actually fully escape the logic by which you tend to make yourself miserable. And it has a lot to do with, with having insight into the, the nature of thought itself and breaking one's identification with thought. I mean, so much of our psychological suffering is mediated by our thinking about the past and the future and then failing to connect with the present because we're thinking so much and, and not noticing that we're lost in thought. So yeah, my motivation, while it was always somewhat intellectual as well, it certainly was primarily about living a better life in the sense of of just not suffering unnecessarily and just actually being happier, uh, recovering from the ordinary uh, collisions in life that cause psychological pain, you know, recovering more quickly. And uh, I think that that certainly is the most common motivation. And, you know, for me, you know, both of these motivations continue. What's changed for me is that it's not so much a, sense of practicing deliberately anymore. I mean, occasionally you know I, I do sit and meditate, but it's much more a sense of always practicing in that my moment-to-moment experience is always being punctuated by you know what I would call meditation. I mean what, you know what would qualify as meditation if I happen to be you know formally in a session of meditation, uh, which is to say, a, a recognition of the way consciousness is. And it happens automatically. You know, it doesn't happen all the time. It's, you know, I, I, I spend a, an impressive amount of time still lost in thought. But when I'm not lost in thought, the thing that I become aware of is this non-duality of subject and object in consciousness. Figure and ground have flipped here a little bit, which is, in the beginning, I was trying to get to this experience and meditation was a formal attempt to do that initially i was it was haphazard and then i was doing it more or less on demand but now there's much more of a sense of this is the way consciousness is and much of normal life is my inadvertently overlooking that but when i'm when i no longer overlook it you know in any given moment it is what you know what i'm restored to It no longer feels like a practice of any kind. In fact, it's, you know, when one is actually, you know, really meditating, one isn't doing something. One is doing less than one normally does. You know, it's it's simply the absence of distraction. You know, once you know what to pay attention to, it is simply the absence of being lost in thought for that moment. Mm
1: hmm. And you, were you suffering as an 18-year-old? Were you in a crisis, that decade of dropout? What was, What's your personal story there?
0: Well, i had had many experiences of intense suffering, you know, but you know, completely ordinary, nothing extraordinary, just completely ordinary sorts of suffering that people experience in life. But I, I'd had them as a teenager. You know, when I was 13, my best friend died. When I was 17, my father died. When I was 18, you just proximate to this experience with MDMA, my girlfriend had broken up with me in college and in freshman year. You know, these are very ordinary experiences. Now, I mean, some people don't have anyone die until they're a little bit older than I was. But if you just if you just wait around, you know, people are going to start dying on you, and so. You know, I was not living in a a civil war or, I mean, there was really, there was nothing unusual happening in my life. I had a very uh, lucky life at that point, all things considered. But, you know, those experiences hit me really hard. I was really unhappy. For instance, after my girlfriend broke up with me in college, you know, I was probably in some kind of clinical state of depression for uh, several months after that. I was not myself, and it was because I was thinking incessantly about what I had lost right i mean I just I was meditating on loss and loneliness and grief, and had absolutely no insight into this process I mean, I was just a mere puppet being blown around by whatever the, the this next train of thought would be right and that's everyone's condition i mean if if you do not see an alternative to being identified with the next linguistic or imagistic appearance in your mind i mean the next emotionally laden statement that you know seems to appear in the voice of your own mind you know whether it's self-judgment or something that produces anxiety or something that produces sadness over a loss you've suffered if there's no space around this automaticity of thought, there's no alternative but to be living out the emotional implications of whatever the thought happens to be. And most of us, most of the time, have at best mediocre thoughts. We're not tending to tell ourselves a story about how good life is, how grateful we are for all that we have, how you know beautiful the people in our lives are and how lucky we are to be with them i mean you can decide to shape your thoughts along very deliberately wholesome lines that will will improve your mood and that's a totally useful practice that is you know very much supportive of mindfulness and and these other practices we're talking about but most of us don't tend to do that automatically most of us think about all of our Disappointments, we notice everything that's wrong. We have a long list of things we wish would happen. So we tend to be captured by a, a story of deficiency, right? Things are not yet good enough. And we're telling ourselves a story that if only we could change these things about our lives, if only I could get a, another girlfriend, right? If only I could meet somebody, that was almost certainly a story I was telling myself at that point or if only I could get back to the girlfriend who broke up with me, that self-talk seems to promise something which proves to be a mirage, this idea that if we could only arrange our lives perfectly, there would be a good enough reason for attention to truly rest in the present moment and be satisfied. But unless you have a mind that is capable of that, that's not what happens. I mean, you get what you want and you find that you simply want other things at that point. And again, your, your happiness appears to be contingent upon satisfying those desires. I'm not saying it's not better to get what you want than to have you know, just one disappointment after the next. I mean, yes, there are ordinary sources of pleasure and happiness in this life, but none of them are durable sources of happiness all of these contingent sources of happiness need to be continually propped up by our efforts. Uh, They all tend to degrade. And, you know, you accomplish one goal, and no matter how, you know, wonderful an experience it is to do that, you know, it doesn't take 15 minutes before people are asking you, you know, what are you going to do next, right? I mean, nothing, nothing gets finely banked as the foundation upon which you can rest and be happy you know, every moment thereafter. So meditation is the practice of understanding something about the mechanics of this dissatisfaction and this search for happiness, and to deliberately step off the hamster wheel here. I mean, just to see that, you know, if you're running on this wheel, on some level you're not not getting anywhere, and the, the only way to truly come to rest is to step off it
1: that resonates with my own experience you mentioned your crisis losing your best friend your father girlfriend it seems quite often the case that that we 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 seem that seemingly need these difficult moments to go and, and discover uh, things like like meditation it's also what i see in my outpatient uh, clinics and, and Maybe that's a pity. People actually tell me it's 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 a pity. I, I had, you know, I, I I had this burnout or depression or whatever, and I wished I would have discovered meditation before that. So so strangely, it, it, it's it's something that is I think also maybe with your community um, and and your app is something that you must often hear that people come to this because they they don't feel or go well and maybe we should invest more in in prevention and and talk about this before mm. we, we we what do you think about that
0: again it is difficult to talk about because it is somewhat paradoxical i mean this is the the line one continually walks in describing meditation and its benefits because it's not that nothing else matters, right? It's not that there aren't ordinary you know, requisites for happiness that you, you want to recommend to people. I mean, yes, it, it is good to have good relationships, being integrated in a community and having people you love and who love you, who can support you and who you in turn support. I mean, the, all you know, all of that is, for most people most of the time, a necessary component of Being a happy person. And yet, there is an illusion here. It's not stable. And all of that is made better by discovering that the true foundation for psychological well-being doesn't rest on even those relationships. To have the best relationship, to have the best marriage, on some level you really need to already be happy. You need to bring into that relationship Not your need for companionship, but your ability to simply love the other person, right? It's not transactional. It's not, I'll love you if you love me. It's, you're already happy and you deeply want happiness for this other person. You're not extracting something from them for your own benefit, though you are getting a lot of benefit by being with them. But you're already, you're, you know, the center of gravity of your well-being is already, you know, over your own feet. I mean, you're, where you stand, you're not leaning into them in a, in a way that that makes the whole enterprise precarious. But again, this, this is paradoxical because I, I wouldn't want to say that it's not important to have the other person. But there's no question that relationships get healthier and healthier the more you, on some level can be just as happy when you're alone in a room. When the one you love leaves the room, you know, you're not diminished by that. And there's kind of two levels at which we can seek well-being. And, and, you know, one level is to continue to do all the things that that matter or seem to matter for most people most of the time. So yes, it's better to be healthy than sick. It's better to be comfortable than uncomfortable. It's better to, to have financial resources than to not have them. And all of these things remain true. And yet the deeper truth is you're only going to be as happy as you can be based on what you're doing with your attention in each moment. And if you're just habitually lost in thought and thinking, you know, crappy thoughts about what just happened to you on social media. You know, whatever your, the, the actual character of your life, you're not in a position to enjoy it. And it is in fact also true that there are people whose minds are such that they can be deeply happy even in conditions that would drive most people totally crazy. You know, I, I've studied with people who spent, you know, decades in caves just meditating, right? Now you you put the average person in a cave and separate him or her from everything they, they want out of life, and everything they love in this world, and they'll go insane. And they'll go insane based on an inability to pay attention in a very specific way. You know, again, it's, there's something paradoxical here, but it's the paradox is resolved by our doing both sets of, of wise things simultaneously. You, you want to have a good life, you want to do work you find meaningful, you want to participate in the world in ways that are fun and creative and connect you to other people, and you want to recognize this
1: thing about the nature of your own mind. In my book, I argue for meditation courses in school, uh, maybe just the way we have specific teachers. Teaching, uh, you know, giving physical education, and, and it's, it's important to take care of our body. But I, I feel we we neglect the emotional well-being in in our educational system. There's wonderful things happening, but 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 nothing structurally, at least not in 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 Europe. But I don't think it's it's the case in in the States that still education is very much about acquiring knowledge and and. Maybe we could and should do better. What's what's your opinion on that?
0: Yeah, yeah. This is something my wife Annika has focused on a lot. She's taught mindfulness in schools, you know, both the school that my daughters go to and, and other schools for some years. And yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, kids can really learn this. I think probably six years old is a, is about the earliest it, you can. Profitably start. But yeah, I mean, kids can learn to initially simply become more aware of what they're feeling. You know, a six year old who can recognize specific emotions clearly and see how they motivate him or her to behave in certain ways, that's uh, an amazing skill to teach. And I mean, it's, it's the first step toward the primary value of. Living an examined life that you know was so central to Western philosophy for you know at least a thousand years or so, and then we we lost it in the West. I mean, this is why so many people like myself have gravitated toward Eastern traditions to at least initially to learn these techniques because the value of wisdom, wisdom as opposed to mere knowledge, is something that it's not that it ever completely disappeared in the West, but it got genuinely submerged by other priorities. And it certainly has been the case for now centuries that if you're a Western philosopher, that carries absolutely no implication that you're doing something that entails living a better life, right? I mean, there need be no connection between philosophy and well being
1: or living a, an ethical
0: life being a benign person at a minimum in this world. And so you can have some of the great philosophers of the Western canon who were just, you know, almighty neurotics and, you know, toxic people. And that says nothing derogatory about their philosophy, right? So you have someone like Nietzsche or Schopenhauer. I mean, just, you know, Schopenhauer threw his housekeeper down a flight of stairs. Wittgenstein, who who just, you know, beat pupils and treat his colleagues terribly. These are not people to emulate in terms of how they lived their lives. Obviously, they, each of these were brilliant men and can be profitably read for their thoughts about other topics, but there was a an important bifurcation between what philosophy became in the West and its original purpose, which was to understand something about the nature of being in the world such that it transforms your capacities as a person it, tra- it transforms the, the actual moment to moment texture of your life so we have largely lost that it's a, i think the fact that even now it's really an afterthought you know or or we're just it's it's appearing as a kind of new discovery that maybe we should be teaching children something about how to be such that they become happier, wiser, more ethical people, and I think that's the most important project we have, and it seems strange that we don't even discuss it, for the most part, at any point in in our education system, uh, and then just rely on people to figure it out for themselves once
1: they become grown-ups. Absolutely. It, It strikes me even more uh, as a caregiver. I'm supposed to take care of others, but actually throughout my studies at university, medical school, and then and uh, specializing in neurology, never ever have learned anything about taking care of myself and, mm. and listening to my own emotions. And in, in we know caregivers are at risk for burnout. I have two colleagues who committed suicide. We know this for such a long time, and still, so little is happening, uh, structurally speaking, in, in our faculty, in our educational system. So, mm. yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, I mean, there's another point there, which is, you know, we've all met doctors who are, you know, maybe brilliant physicians. I mean, they've certainly in my experience been recommended to me as as brilliant physicians who have terrible bedside manners they're they're in in no sense a healing presence as a person, and so you're coming to them essentially for their their expertise as physicians you know as you know diagnosticians or you know people who could recommend a course of treatment or they might be brilliant surgeons, right? So this is actually the pair of hands you want operating if it comes to that. But, you know, these are people who are just on some level canceling, uh, you know, whatever healing benefits there might be of actually connecting with a wise and compassionate physician because of who they seem to be, you know, in their own skins as people. You know, I, I don't know what they teach in medical school about how to Be with patients, but obviously the profession of being a doctor selects for a range of you know personality types, and I'm sure that the the various specialties further select, right? So it's you're somewhat at the mercy of the personality that shows up there. And uh, again, yeah, it would be better if there was a more holistic understanding of just what it means to be in that role. Right, because it's. I mean, you're dealing uh, again, and I'm not speaking from experience. I'm really just speaking as a consumer of medicine. But you know, depending on what specialty you're in, you're encountering people very often in the most vulnerable, anxiety-ridden, you know, or or even grief-stricken moments of their lives, and it matters what sort of person you are in those moments.
1: Absolutely, in in my field of expertise, seeing patients. After comb and their families and a lot of people die, yeah, it it is a big challenge to do the job with with empathy and compassion. And as you said, we we were not selected for that. We we had no particular courses, and 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 that is that is a pity. Speaking of that, and in in my job again, I see death on a daily basis, and and. How did meditation change your relationship with death?
0: Well, you know, it's it's certainly traditional to frame the project of meditation and you know, spiritual practice generally, contemplative practice, very much in the context of getting ready to die. On some level, it's like This is part of the the explicit project, which is you know, death is inevitable, and we spend most of our lives by default, you know, materially avoiding it for obvious reasons, but also avoiding thinking about it. I mean, this is the whole notion of death denial, which you know, I think has a lot to it, and there's a wonderful book by that title, The Denial of Death by Ernst Becker. We try to distract ourselves from this ever-present reality, and Many of us manage to do that rather well, right I mean there're people who don't think about death all that much because they're they're so busy trying to have a good time in life and I mean, I would say that you know by tendency, I've always been a person who who has not been able to forget about death for very long right i like you know this is probably due to the fact that I did lose a few people close to me you know fairly early on, so you know it, it was always obvious to me and at least you know from 13 onward, it was quite obvious to me that this was a reality, and this could happen at any time. There are no guarantees that you're going to live a long life. And so it's something that I've always kept in front of me as a fact. I mean, I, I think more than, than the average person. And meditation is, is a further way of doing that. I mean, it's, it's, it's a way of extracting the wisdom of doing that, rather than than merely being made morbid by one's awareness of death, is a method of recognizing just how much there is to be grateful for. You haven't died yet. Your life is right here to be enjoyed, and it, and it can only be enjoyed by you. Right, i mean, in this corner of the universe that is illuminated where you sit. You know, only you get to make the most of that, and how you pay attention to it. It really is the the most important piece of that. I mean, it's not really making the most of it. Isn't in the end radically changing what is already the case there. I mean, it's, it's really being able to sink into the experience of being in the world more and more and enjoy it, and enjoy it in relationship to other people, enjoy it in relationship to the the natural beauty of the world, enjoy it by behaving more and more ethically, enjoy it by having better and better intentions with respect to your collaboration with other people and enjoying the quality of of mind born of those good intentions, right? I mean, rather than seeing yourself in competition with others, actually wanting other people to succeed and feeling good when they succeed rather than feeling like your happiness has been somehow diminished by, you know, someone got a slice of the pie that you wanted. I mean, using all of that to come to rest more and more in the present moment I, mean, I, re- I really do see that as the project and an awareness of death is apart from just being in contact with with reality right i mean this is coming for all of us it is the backstop that keeps you from just wasting all of your time and attention you know without an awareness of death i don't know i think it, it would be possible to just distract yourself as pleasantly as you could muster Always, right, and and have kind of no deeper priorities. There really is something good about being aware of death, but it, unless you can find that and use that, it is easy to just feel like it's it's a source of of unhappiness. I mean, every time you think about death, you feel like okay, that's that's no place to linger, and I, I just want to. The project now is to forget about it, and uh, I think that's a a misuse of
1: the actual opportunity. You've referred a number of times to to the Buddhist tradition, and how do you deal with their belief in in life after death as a famous and strong atheist?
0: Mm. Yeah, the truth is, I don't really deal with it. I mean, I think I'm in truth just agnostic as to what happens after death because I. I I'm aware that we don't understand how consciousness emerges, at at what point it emerges out of the physical complexity of the world. You know, is there a computational account of consciousness that uh, makes it absolutely clear that when the brain dies, that's it? As you know, I I think anyone would be on firm ground being biased toward that kind of view, right? I I think it's You're not going to embarrass yourself among scientists or philosophers at this point by thinking that, you know, the death of the brain is the end of consciousness in the case of any person. But it's just, it's not clear what consciousness is or how it's emerging uh, or even that it does emerge. We can't even rule out panpsychism at this moment, although you know, we can't really rule it in either, and it's, it may be unfalsifiable. So I, I don't, I don't spend much time thinking about that either. So for me, nothing, nothing in my life is predicated on an expectation about what happens after death, apart from the certainty that I'll be separated from everything familiar that I'm enjoying while alive. That much is clear. There's no, there's no good reason to think you'll be reunited with everyone you love after death. That would be, obviously, a miracle that would be very difficult to understand. And whatever happens after death, this life really is as precious as it appears. The traditional you know, Abrahamic conceptions of heaven, I guess... It's not a very clear one in the Jewish tradition, but you know, among Christians and Muslims, the idea that you just you know, you kind of fly off the brain with your your personality intact, and you land in some kind of paradise if you were good, or in some hell realm if you were bad, or rather if you believed the right or wrong things. It really doesn't relate to whether you're good or bad, as we know, unfortunately. So that view clearly makes no sense. But whether there's something more bizarre that may continue? I, you know, I I just don't know. I mean, you know, certain experiences many of us have had, you know, either in meditation or on psychedelics can give motivation to the sense that the mind is, is far stranger than it seems in everyday waking consciousness. But, you know, whether that strangeness has any implications for what happens after death, I don't know.
1: Because what you mentioned about the subject-object collapse and and this kind of pure experience during meditation but also when you take these um, psychedelic drugs is also what we hear in people who survive their coma or or life-threatening condition and have a near-death experience. So this is something that we've been studying for Past ten years now here with the the coma science group and we have nearly two thousand of these fascinating testimonies. Again, it's it's a subject that, as was the case for consciousness itself, was considered a, a, a taboo. And then you know we we've we did some auto censorship there, which is, which is a pity. But but maybe it would be interesting and and and. That's actually what we're trying to do, c- comparing these subjective experiences. And if, if you permit some, maybe I, I, I can ask anyone listening to this who had such an experience to share it with us. Um, mm. There's a couple of people here doing their PhD and postdocs. So share it w- with us, NDE from Near Death Experience, NDE at ULiege from University of UniversityofLiege.be because i think it's it's fascinating and and in your experience do you think it it as a neuroscientist then helps you to understand the basis of consciousness
0: well i'm not sure anything helps us understand the basis of consciousness yet right i'm convinced that the the hard problem of consciousness is in fact quite hard and so you know the short answer is no Meditation doesn't help resolve the hard problem. In fact, you can't even tell that you have a brain when you're meditating, much less that it has some involvement in producing the mind as you know it or consciousness itself. So that you know, some of the you know traditional limitations of introspection are 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 kind of obvious, right? And it's not that meditation gives you the ability to bypass all of those you know reasons to be skeptical about the utility of introspection in developing a science of the mind but it does give you a clearer sense than i think most people would otherwise have that consciousness itself is conceptually irreducible there are many people who think about consciousness in science and in philosophy who seem to manage to bypass the intuitions that that motivate the hard problem The hard problem, just to remind people, most people listening probably are aware of it, but it it is this this intuition that there's something left unexplained here. When you talk about a, a physical system like a brain accomplishing all that it does, you know, information processing, perception, behavioral output, it clearly can do that, or it certainly seems to do much of that without any attendant conscious experience. It certainly seems that most of what the brain is doing is not illuminated by this qualitative experience of subjectivity, and yet it's doing all of these things. An example I, I would often give in a context like this, because I'm speaking, is that you know I'm not aware, really, of how I'm speaking. There are all these events happening in my nervous system that are required to accomplish this task of my producing these small mouth noises that amount to coherent speech and you know on your side if you're listening to this you know you are effortlessly and unconsciously parsing this stream of noise and you know if you speak english you you are comprehending what i'm saying and it's just not clear at all how this is happening right and it's not attended by any kind of qualitative experience. So when there are mistakes made, when I misspeak, you know, when I when I fail to get to the end of a sentence in in grammatically correct form, or I struggle to find a word, or I use the wrong word, or all of those glitches in speech, again, are I, I can be detecting them. There's something that it's like to be me noticing them, but they're happening based on a process that I cannot inspect really at all. And so much of the mind is like that and so much of the, what the brain is doing is like that the mystery is why isn't it all like that why would anything be associated with conscious experience and that remains mysterious no matter how much you describe the mechanics of any one of these processes no matter how much we drill down on you know the specific events at the level of synapses in the brain that account for, you know, linguistic processing or, you know, vision or emotion or you know, any form of behavior anything that a human being does or, or can seem to be doing when viewed from the outside no matter how many details you pile up about that account for the mechanics of those processes they never answer this fundamental question why should there be something that is like to be that part of the process, right? And yet many people in our field, both philosophers of mind and neuroscientists, seem to blow past this impasse without noticing that they've done it, and they, they more or less say they don't feel that there's a problem here intellectually at all. You know, once we get a complete explanation of the mechanics of things, That will be what consciousness is, right? And what meditation can give you is a deeper sense of how nonsensical that seems. Now, Now, I'm not saying, well, we can never get a physical understanding of consciousness. I mean, it may in fact be the case that consciousness is just some pattern of information processing in the brain that can be, you know, more or less completely described but the hard problem remain, it remains the fact that there there just simply is no evidence of consciousness as it is in itself apart from consciousness as it is in itself we would never be tempted to wonder about consciousness but for the fact that we feel it directly and experience it directly on our own side and so it's meditation makes that more and more vivid and but again, that presents as a kind of impasse to understanding rather than something that
1: facilitates it. I'm surprised and I would disagree that that we could not learn from, from meditation and, and the experience, maybe the the code of, of consciousness, where indeed our ignorance is is just so enormous that for me it's difficult to talk about hard or easy problems. It's it's just a problem. But to me, meditation wasn't as interesting, uh, both from a personal and clinical perspective. But then, also as a as a scientist interested in in consciousness, I, I think it's a pity I, I didn't experience it before, because I I, I do believe there is a huge difference between our theoretical knowledge about uh, whatever here cognition or or perception, and then actually having this experience and and that was for me obvious when discussing with these buddhist monks or the dalai mm-hmm. lama or but also with 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 hypnosis that we we study or psychedelics i mean i i think you can read about uh, how psychedelics work and you can talk to people who took it and then as you and i know i was in an mri scanner uh, and having psilocybin magic mushrooms being having it injected in my veins, uh, really was very different from mm. anything I, I read or, no or talked yeah. about with others. So I think the experiences, and, 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 and then linking you and I, we use functional MRI, and, but then, of course, we can't make any sense of these images if we don't bridge the gap to, to the subjective phenomenology and mm. the neurophenomenology that maybe we've, we've neglected again for for too long, what do you think
0: actually, so I think I took a far too narrow answer to your question because I don't think it it helps resolve the, you know what I'm calling the hard problem here, but I do think it's relevant to certainly most of the the easy problems, right? So if you're talking about understanding the character of conscious experience, there we are really dependent on the quality of people's first-person reports about what it's like to be having those experiences, right? So if you put someone in a neuroimaging scanner and give them a task, I mean, some work obviously can be done just based on their behavioral outputs, but in so many paradigms, we are dependent on first-person report. For the phenomenon we're studying, right? So, if you want to know the difference between feeling happy and sad, right? Or feeling envious of somebody, right? I mean, these are, we always have recourse to people's subjective ratings of what it's like to be them. And insofar as people are terrible witnesses of what it's like to be them. Because they're distracted every moment of the day. Meditation offers a, you know, a real path for us to find better observers of their own minds, such that we can have better conversations about what's actually happening in a person when they're submitting to whatever experimental paradigm we've concocted. This is a, a point that I think Francisco Varela made several decades ago about a neurophenomenological approach to. Studying the mind right where you you use the third person tools of of science and in this case neuroimaging, but they they can be married to more and more sophisticated first person observers on the on the other side of the experiment you know I, I think meditation is really an essential piece there and um yeah so I, I think that that holds a lot of promise mm
1: hmm F- fully agree uh, h- how do you see meditation as this possibility to to uh have conscious control on 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 your thoughts and and this this process of mental training with what i understood your stand on on the illusion of free will
0: well so yeah, this is actually in part a, a further answer to the question you just asked because you know some of these core insights that one has at a certain point in meditation i would argue bring our first person experience into greater alignment with what we have every reason to believe is true of us from studying the brain right so it's pretty obvious when you study the brain that the idea that there is a an unchanging subject in the middle of the mind doesn't make a lot of sense. Any kind of functional neuroanatomical description of what the brain is doing does not allow for a homunculus inside that process that gets carried through from one moment to the next unchanged. I mean, at minimum, whatever the self is, it would be a process rather than a thing. It would be a, a, a verb rather than a noun at the level of, you know, what the brain is doing, you know, physiologically. And, you know, it's, it's also clear there's no piece of neuroanatomical real estate there. There's no self module. The self is not going to be sitting there in the pineal gland or any, any other place, flying the plane of the conscious mind. So once one experiences this, this loss of self, and just sees that there's just this flow of consciousness and its contents, I would argue that brings our, our experience into greater conformity with the third-person facts about the mind. Uh, and this is somewhat, this is an analogy I've drawn before, it's somewhat analogous to being able to see the blind spot, you know, the optic blind spot. We know it, it must be there based on the anatomy of the, the retina, but we don't see it, but then you can perform this experiment with a piece of paper and a pen, and, and, and you, suddenly you see it, and, then you, and you recognize, okay, that is actually first-person data that aligns experience with what we know must be true in the um, physical body that is underwriting that experience. And so it is with free will. I mean, the problem in philosophy has been that conserving most people's intuitive experience of of being a, a freely willing agent in the world that, that has proven a hopeless project. You know, it's just, there is no way to describe the sheer causality of things, whether it's deterministic or random or a combination of determinism and randomness. There's no way to describe this concatenation of events, how one thing follows the next, that leaves a place for the sense of libertarian free will that most people are walking around with, and most people mean when they say free will. Now, it's true that there are philosophers of mind, I mean, people like Dan Dennett, who have tried to reconceptualize free will in a way that gets around this, and this this whole style of philosophy is called compatibilism. But to my eye, they they, they simply change the subject in the end. It really, it's not a solution to the problem. That the it's a kind of Bait and switch where they're not acknowledging that the thing most people think they have doesn't actually exist. I mean, what most people think they have is the real prospect of being able to do other than they did a moment ago. I mean, most people are living with the sense that if they rewound the movie of their lives, this scene that they're now in could have played out differently, right? It's not. That it could have played out differently based on noise in the system, you know, random events that determined what happened. No, it it could have played out differently because they, as the autonomous source of their thoughts and actions and feelings and intentions, could have decided differently a moment ago. And, uh, you know, I would argue there's no place in the physics of things to make sense of that. And there's no place in the neurophysiology of the brain to make sense of that, which is to say that if we return your brain to precisely the state it was in a moment ago, every single charge at every single synapse is exactly as it was, you will say and think and do and intend the, the same thing you did a moment ago in perfect conformity to the laws of nature. And again, if you add randomness to the process, well, you know. Perhaps that allows for for a difference, but that's not the difference people feel they have. You don't feel that your free will is predicated on the universe perpetually rolling dice at the, you know, subatomic level or at any other level, causing you to behave differently than you otherwise would. Again, this is the kind of insight you can have by simply paying closer attention to what it's like to be you in each moment. I mean, it, the one contribution I've made to this conversation about free will that is somewhat novel, at least in, in the context in which I've had the conversation, is that this isn't actually a problem that needs to be solved. It's a, it's a pseudo-problem. It, it's not that we have an experience of free will that we have to figure out how to reconcile with determinism or, or any other kind of causality in the world. No, I mean, we, we actually don't have an experience of free will it's not there to be found. If you look closely for it, you will see that you don't experience free will and that your experience is totally compatible with the truth of determinism or the truth of determinism plus randomness, which is to say you don't know what you're going to think next until the thought itself arises, right? You as the conscious agent, who in other moods might presume to be free to think whatever, in fact, you want to think, well, the next thought is going to arise whatever you think you may want to think. And you have absolutely no authorship over it. Literally none. Because you can't think it before you think it, right? I mean, it's it's just, it simply appears. It appears every bit as much as my next thought will appear to you when I speak it, right? And there are further things to say about the nature of personal identity and, you know, how we make sense of the fact that, you know, you wake up tomorrow morning being you rather than me and all of that, but free will really isn't part of this picture. I mean, just each thing that appears in consciousness and everything that outside of consciousness that is necessary for whatever appears to appear in consciousness. Right, all of the unconscious processing, all of this is happening from the point of view of the conscious subject, very much in the dark and totally outside its control. And that's a subjective fact in addition to being an objective one.
1: Could one not argue that given our current lack of understanding of consciousness, we we are ignorance when it comes to the code neural code of thought, perception? Emotion doesn't permit, I believe, the scientific uh, disproof or rejection of the existence of of free will. Um, I, I I I think maybe one until we have true understanding, scientific understanding of consciousness, it is very hard to to say any meaningful things about free will. And as such,
0: no well, I, I would say that free will I mean, f- first of all it's it's important not to confuse it with other things about the mind that are obviously facts, right? so that you know, y- yes, there's a difference between voluntary and involuntary behavior, for instance, right. So we want to be able to conserve that difference in you know dispensing with this notion of free will, but I mean the the problem with with this notion of freedom is that the more you press into it, any conceptual basis for it vanishes. Just take the simplest possible case of free will, where you know I'm asking you to decide between two things, right, and you can take as long as you want, and you can decide for any reason, right so like do do you want to have? Chinese food for dinner tonight or Italian food. You can literally take 12 hours to make this decision and you can think about anything you want to think about, right? So it's a circumstance of where there's absolutely no coercion whatsoever. And then just look at how that decision gets made. Free will is nowhere in sight. First of all, there are all the things that are conditioning the decision which you didn't have any control over or any input into right I mean your you know genetic and environmental influences that determine how much you like certain tastes or your associations with certain concepts you know whether your parents took you to Italy when you were a child whatever associations you have with different cuisine right but so there's there's all of that conditioning all of that's loaded into the system right but even if you were going to just be as existentialist as you could possibly be in that situation and say, well, you know, despite all of my conditioning and all that has led up to this moment, I as a freely willing agent am going to make a perverse decision here. I'm going to, you know, the truth is I like Italian food better than Chinese food. I always do, but I'm going to pick Chinese just to prove my freedom in this moment, right?
1: Of course not, Sam. I'm, I'm, I'm Belgian. I will go for mussels and french fries right. okay well
0: i didn't give you that choice there was some coercion here you see freedom right. exists yeah okay so but what, whatever choice you make you know however in character or out of character it is right you are in no position to understand why it went the way that it did right like why you found that thought compelling like if after hours of deliberation you thought, you know what, I'm just going to flip a coin, right? Or, you know what, I'm going to do the thing I don't want to do just to prove that I'm free, right? That was a thought that arose, that you found compelling enough to put it into action. It became behaviorally effective for whatever reason, but the important part is that it's a reason you as the subject cannot inspect, right, and did not determine. And in another context, it wouldn't have been effective. It had the synaptic weights it had for reasons that you didn't cause. You, the you, the, the experiencer, you're watching this movie, and you are not actually directing it. I mean, the, the sense that you're directing it is part of the movie. And again, this is really just the the flip side of the coin of the illusion of self. The only reason why free will is a problem that anyone spends any time thinking about is because people feel like they have it. They feel like selves. I mean, it it is the, the obverse of this feeling of being me, being I, being a subject in the head, being a thinker of thoughts. In addition to thoughts merely arising, people feel that they're they're the thinker of the thought. There's a thinker in addition to the thoughts. Again, this is an illusion that can be directly penetrated through meditation, and this is in answer to your question mm-hmm. about how the practice of meditation can help us understand the mind scientifically. It can because it, in this case, cuts through this seeming impasse. I mean, people are left thinking, well, how can we understand free will at the level of the brain? I mean, there people have raised tens of millions of dollars to study free will, right? From my point of view, this is a truly a phantom problem. Again, I'm not saying that there's no difference between voluntary and involuntary action or you know, any other thing that might be tangential to this notion of free will, but this is like looking for ectoplasm or, you know, looking for the soul or looking for something that we have good reason, you know, not to need to look for. And again, it's, it can be experienced. That way, I mean, whenever I pay attention to what it's like to be me, there's no place to put this notion of free will. Again, it's not that you don't have ordinary conversations with people or with yourself to motivate human beings to behave differently than they than they have. Right. So, like, you know, if, if I do something that seems like a mistake, or I do something that I regret, or I you know wish I hadn't done that's still a phenomenon i can make sense of that i can make sense of wanting to do better next time right obviously that's an important part of of improving as a person but when i actually inspect the process here there's simply a mi- mysterious flow of causality and any sense that there's a subject in control of it evaporates there is simply the next thing That arises, right? So, like, let's say I'm on a diet and I want to lose weight. I form this intention to lose weight. This is the quintessential case of implementing one's will toward a purpose and encountering failures of will along the way, right? People will this thing. I'm going to, I'm going to eat nothing but, but vegetables and protein and and abjure all sugar and other, you know, unhealthy things for the next month but then you know 6 hours from now i find myself you know reaching for a cookie and i'm at you know there's this tug of war between seemingly two parts of my own mind there's the one who wants to lose weight and there's the one who wants the cookie and who's going to win right and there's the phenomenon of weakness of will is is found here but to inspect this process is to see that in each moment it is in fact mysterious there's no one who understands why one intention wins in this Darwinian contest over another in any given moment. If the one who wants the cookie wins, or the one who wants to maintain the diet wins, there's no me that is the agent there, right? There is simply a winner of that particular contest, and that is part of the causal flow of the universe, right? I mean, that is you know again whether there's randomness or it's or it's best understood in purely deterministic terms there is no one who is free there there's simply the process and that can be felt directly this problem of explaining our freedom of will truly evaporates once you become sensitive to the phenomenology even in moments like that where you're which are the prototypical moments of of agency and The free exercise of a conscious will, but again, I understand it doesn't feel that way. If it doesn't feel that way, again, where that's the the mapping onto the experience is, you know, founders for people where they think, well, what the fuck is he talking about? I can do what I want to do right now. Like, watch this. I'm going to pick up this glass of water, right? I did it. That feels a certain way, but what I'm saying is that is what it's like. To be thinking without knowing that you're thinking. I mean, you may have an abstract idea that, of course, I know I'm thinking. What is he talking about? I know I'm thinking. But that that feeling of self possession, that's a thought. That's what it's like to be lived by the next thought that arises in consciousness uninspected. That's the condition of having no distance from this feature of, of the mind and not seeing any space. Around the flow of thought, it's, it's the identification with thought that feels a certain way, and it feels like a self that has free will and certainly doesn't want to be told that it doesn't have free will.
1: But you, you, you see that there can be voluntary action. So we, we will, we'll need more, more science maybe to uh, understand. Uh, and, well, and again,
0: I... yeah. Well, let, let's just explore that. So I mean, so there's the neurological differences between voluntary and involuntary action but there's also just the phenomenological difference i mean so like with a voluntary action there are many features to it that are not shared by involuntary actions i mean so one there is there's some predictive coding going on such that i mean this is largely unconscious but the violations of it are are conscious so when i decide to reach for a glass of water as I'll do now I have a <laughs> I have an cheers I have an implicit you know or, or a subconscious expectation about how that's going to go I have formed a a motor plan and you know I will certainly notice violations of that plan if I reach for the glass of water and my hand passes right through it because it was just a, you know, a hologram or something that confused me, right? So it just, it's a glass of water made of of light, and I can't actually grab it. That violation of my expectations will startle me, right? And and it, it will reveal, if nothing else, that I had those expectations implicitly to begin with, right? So there is some efferent copy of motor expectation here, which is informing the experience of voluntarily engaging this action, and that's not happening when I have involuntary action like you know a muscle spasm or something that causes me to move my hand you know without any you know motor plan underwriting it and there's the fact that, given all of that and other features of the nervous system, I can be told not to do that, and part of my brain can suppress that behavior because it was voluntarily initiated in the first place, right? So I can decide, okay, I'm not going to reach for the glass of water right now. I can't decide to no longer have a certain kind of tremor if, in fact, it's a proper you know, involuntary tremor, right? And that feels different. To see my hand moving and I'm not intending it, right, feels different phenomenologically. Uh, And is different neurologically than my deciding to move and then moving precisely when the intention to move achieved a certain degree of salience, and yeah. So I mean, these are different, and it's important ethically, obviously, to recognize these differences. I mean, if someone accidentally does something that winds up killing another person, that is different than somebody intentionally killing another person. And it's different because it says many different things about them. I mean, the 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 accident says almost nothing about a person except, you know, perhaps they were they were more negligent than they should have been, but on some level they were if it's a pure accident, right, then really they were unlucky. You know, they were unlucky, and the person who got killed was also unlucky. But somebody who intends to kill a person has a lot going on in their minds that we need to worry about, you know, or we, or we certainly may need to worry about, and is fairly predictive of future behavior in other situations. All of that is no less relevant in a world without free will. If we built a robot that, you know, would occasionally form a behavioral plan to murder people, well, we, we wouldn't need to attribute free will to that robot in order to worry about it or to want to constrain its behavior. Or even you know want to to switch it off, right? And so that's that's a similar case with with uh, I mean we we could build a robot wherein we made this distinction between voluntary and involuntary behavior, and we wouldn't think to smuggle free will
1: into the robot necessarily. I would disagree. Mm -hmm. I I think our best, most smart robots, full of artificial intelligence, are actually not having any thoughts, perception, or or emotion, and are, yeah, true zombies lacking any voluntary uh, action. So, again, there oh, are. Uh, well, no, so I, I would agree. No, I would totally agree
0: with our current robots. But I'm saying if we get to the point of building more and more sophisticated robots, then we could just flip it around. At what point are we going to begin to worry whether or not we have built free will into them. I mean we've built them, we've we understand the algorithms that are driving their behavior. If at a certain point we have a robot that, you know, can pass the Turing test that can behave voluntarily in all the the usual ways that people do, what I'm arguing is at no point along the way having understood this process of building such a robot will we say Oh that's the point where we put the free will in.
1: Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. It that that the future will tell but uh, my thinking would be it it would it would seem conscious it would look like it's conscious or uh, having yeah. volition or but but it would not actually have the experience but but again it's it's just illustrating our ignorance right is you mentioned panpsychism is is consciousness living limited to humans as many think and and biologically speaking that is probably wrong or is it limited to mammals or also other animals or is it limited to living organisms or non-living matter but but yeah it's it's fascinating how how little we actually know about conscious thoughts yeah uh, isn't it yeah may i move to you as as this scientist with with huge faith in in, in science and, and reading your moral landscape now what is it ten years ago one could be surprised how how you now uh, talk about meditation and, and spirituality so 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 how how do you how do you combine manage this this very strong belief in in science and 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 here having the spiritual experience
0: well i have a very strong belief in the primacy of of reason in terms of the method by which we form beliefs Uh about the world i mean we're trying to it seems to me develop a map of reality you know, in, in all of our talking about it, thinking about it, exchanging ideas about it, performing experiments so as to refine our sense of what's going on, that whole project of empirical engagement with the world for the purpose of belief formation, and perhaps most important, for the purpose of falsifying propositions that in the end we'll, we'll no longer believe, all of that is trying to Develop a better and better map of reality, whatever it is. And part of that mapping extends to the kinds of experiences that are possible. And for me, this is the most important part of the mapping. The real situation that we're in is one in which the possibility of experiencing greater and lesser forms of well being you know as as conscious beings in this in this world you know whatever in fact our our engagement is is, is with with reality itself there's no question that there's a vast range of pleasant and unpleasant experiences available and there is also just no question that we want to move away from you know the the worst possible states of misery and pain toward something you know far more pleasurable beautiful interesting creative etc so what we have is a navigation problem and you know i think science is a necessary part in fact you know, probably the most important part of navigating this space intelligently and understanding just what, you, what is it that allows for the most number of people uh, most often, to avoid states of pointless unhappiness and to find, you know, better and better ways of living. And part of what makes life worth living is also satisfying intellectual curiosity, right? So there there is this sort of the purely intellectual satisfaction of curiosity mode in which we do science. And, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't dispute that, but I do think that on some level, you can't totally step away from the the utility of all of this. And you especially can't step away from it when you think about the prospect of learning certain things about the world, where, wherein the, the mere knowledge winds up harming the prospect of, of living a good life for everybody. Right? I and mean, is something that the philosopher Nick Bostrom has talked about. I mean, he, he has this analogy of the urn of invention, where we keep reaching into this urn and pulling out uh, various colored balls, and until this moment, we've pulled out only white balls and gray balls, uh, and a white ball is a you know an idea or a scientific invention that is purely good, right The only benefits follow from it, but far more commonly we, we pull out gray balls where you know there are good parts to this. Invention or idea or good implications, but they're also bad ones, right? So we wind up splitting the atom and we get you know nuclear power, uh, which is good, but we also get nuclear bombs, which you know certainly for most purposes are are bad. And much of our scientific understanding has this dual use. you know obviously we want to understand the mechanics of viruses and their spread, but you know insofar as we really do understand the molecular biology here well then we are equipped to weaponize viruses and bioterrorism now becomes a thing right so we're we're in this position of pulling out you know some white balls and a lot of gray balls but Bostrom asks, asks us to consider the prospect that there might be a few black balls in the urn of invention which is to say merely discovering a certain form of knowledge could be in principle, antithetical to human survival it's just it's obvious to me that we don't want that knowledge right I mean there, there may be some crazy purist out there who would dispute this, but if in fact it's possible that there are black balls in the urn of invention, well then there are certain true facts that you know we are wise not to want to know, and we want to you know we want to navigate around those spots on the landscape of of knowledge so I do think on some level, the well-being of humanity and beyond, I mean, the well-being of, of any conscious creature is the most important thing, right? It's more important than anything else we're up to, and, any, and anything else we are up to that seems important, seems important when translated into the currency of, of well-being, you know, which in the end is a spiritual concern I mean spiritual may need to be in in scare quotes given all that people associate with the term but I think a concern for the well-being of conscious creatures is at bottom what it's where ethics and spirituality truly rest and it does subsume any scientific project in the end for me I mean it really is the point of being in this place yeah so I, I don't think there I don't think there is a Contradiction, as long as you would acknowledge that in the end, on some level, truth is subservient to goodness, right? I mean, if you can admit that there are certain things that are not worth knowing, you've tipped the balance ever so slightly in the direction of the good over the true or the beautiful there. But, you know, apart from that, I, I think there's You know, they're all of a piece. Whatever ethical or or spiritual aspirations we might form in life, there is a right way and a wrong way to pursue those aspirations. And and the rightness and wrongness of those ways will be spelled out very much in the language of science. There are neurological reasons why paying attention in certain ways constitutes meditation and paying attention in other ways doesn't. At some level. The explanation for the efficacy of, of any practice in this area is a neurological one, or a neurophysiological one. And so science is the, is the ground truth of any spiritual story in the end, and, and, and that's true at every level. There are right and wrong ways to organize a society so that most of the people can live the freest, most creative, least stressful, least harmful, least paranoid, least agitated lives, right? And we know something about this. We know, we don't know everything we want to know about it, but we know that, you know, deciding to decapitate people at halftime at a soccer game, as the Taliban do, isn't the best possible way. And so every human science and almost science from economics on down is relevant to this conversation. I don't see that there's any kind of line between spirituality or ethics rightly understood and and a scientific understanding of what's happening.
1: Yeah, to me, I, I personally, and I'm a hard-nosed scientist uh, as, as yourself, and yet I have the feeling that when looking at the rainbow, uh, the stars, uh, baby being born and and yes we understand part of the physics and chemistry and biology of these things but there's so much we ignore at hmm. one given point and and then we just i think shouldn't be too arrogant as a scientist and and maybe look at these things with more wonder and and that to me is maybe the the the, the challenge to to what to me spirituality can be is to just acknowledge how much we ignore. And, and it's, it's, well, to me, if I understand you correctly, uh, considering that these big questions and, you know, what, what is the meaning of this life and, and is this a purely scientific question is, wow, it's, it's having really a lot of faith in science now.
0: I think um, it's possible to, to misunderstand my claim here, because I, I fully agree that there's much more to understand about the world than we've understood, and that that will probably always be the case. No matter how much progress we make, there, there'll, there'll be an ocean of ignorance that we're standing at the, the edge of. But that doesn't mean progress isn't really progress, right? I mean, we, mm-hmm. we do make progress. But I, I would say to you that the, the, the awe and the humility are always there to be appreciated, no matter how much progress we make, because on some basic level, understanding the world doesn't reach into its fundamental mystery. There's a fundamental mystery of being that persists even in the presence of things that we more or less totally understand, right? I mean, like, you know, if if I just pay attention to anything, if I look at, again, the glass of water sitting in front of me on my desk, if I really look at it, I recognize that on some level, I don't know what it is. It is fundamentally a mysterious appearance in consciousness. I have a word for it. I can say the word glass. I can recall what I understand about the the structure of, of glass as a you know a generic material in the world right i can begin telling myself a story or reiterating a story i've heard about the lattice structure of molecules within glass but none of that linguistic behavior you know whether i do it out loud or i do it covertly in the in my mind none of that reaches in to the phenomenon right the phenomenology is such that all of our concepts are being applied on top of an experience that is irreducibly mysterious, even in the case where it seems most ordinary and least mysterious, right? So, I mean, I, you know, obviously if you take psilocybin, you're confronted with the fireworks of, you know, psychedelic change in the contents of consciousness. So it's easy to see how all of that is is awe-inspiring and mysterious. but even the most mundane experience of just simply looking at a glass of water that I myself remember filling, that perception is on some level as mysterious as anything anyone sees at any point in life. Looking up at the Milky Way or dropping acid, or if you actually connect with consciousness as it is in an ordinary moment, it is as mysterious as anything
1: ever is. Thank you so much for answering all of these questions and looking forward to uh, see where this brings us both scientifically spiritually speaking and and thanks for um i I, I really think inspiring many people and and making meditation uh, Something that that is more uh, accessible to all. Nice. Well, it's been a
0: pleasure speaking with you, Stephen. And I, I know that people listening will want to know more about what you're up to because it's a, you know, this has been an interview of me, uh, <laughs> but you have tipped your hand that you are you're involved with all kinds of fascinating things. So. Can you just re- reiterate how people can be part of the the study on near-death experience and and make contact with with the other things you're studying?
1: Yes, thanks for that. With with the team, we first of all try to improve our care for the severely brain damaged, but part of that is also the uh, scientific aim to to better understand consciousness, including near-death experiences. And so, yes, if anyone listening has, or knows someone who had a near-death experience, please share it. Near-death experience, NDE, NDE at uliège.be. That's one of the many things we do, including looking at the effects of meditation, hypnosis, and psychedelic drugs. So yes, a lot, as, as we said. Needs to be done there because it's uh, an area that is actually quite quite young, and and so it's uh, wonderful to to with the team be able to um, participate in mm. that big big scientific mystery.
0: I actually have a further question uh, before we sign off. Do, do you think that um, offering a track on hypnosis in the waking up app is would be Doable. I've a little. I have some experience with hypnosis, but not a lot. Is it's is it the kind of thing where you think we could actually have someone, uh, and you might, perhaps you might be able to recommend someone who could produce a full self hypnosis or guided hypnosis curriculum
1: within the app. Definitely, I think that that could be a, a great idea. There's a lot of overlap. As said, we were using hypnosis in In a clinical context, and actually are now trying to understand well what is similar and different between these different meditation exercises and techniques and hypnosis and it seems to be also in terms of the neural correlates that that it is it is different but but it's definitely for people interested in in you know mental training and uh, a useful tool and and what we classically do in in mindfulness again we use mental imagery we use a number of the of the techniques that that uh, are also part of uh, of hypnosis so definitely yes i i can propose people or or well would also be happy to talk a little bit about about what we do here are you using uh, or or have you did you try uh, Auto hypnosis or any of these techniques yourself
0: yeah, you know I have very little experience with i I have a experience that I had actually in freshman year in college where um actually before I got into meditation this is, yeah this was before my um m d m a experience before I had any real interest in these things, I was in Phil Zimbardo's you know introduction to psychology class at Stanford and he, they were doing hypnosis research and they used the you know the Stanford hypnotizability mm-hmm. scale on mm-hmm. the whole class and i was um i believe it was a 10 point scale and i believe i was a 9 in terms of hypnotizability and i remember what that test was like and it was pretty fascinating because it was i mean the the, the moment i remember which convinced me that you know, there was something to this was um i was asked to um i don't know if this is the way the test is still conducted but this is this seemed to be what they did then they gave us these various tasks after giving us you know after inducting us into a hypnotic state and one task was i think they said okay you are 9 years old and they gave us a piece of paper and a pen and they said sign your name and without thinking about it i mean there was really i mean i was aware that this was a kind of you know, involuntary change in in motor plan, because it it just, I I was surprised to see that I, you know, without forming any conscious plan to think about how I would sign my name as a nine-year-old, my hand just signed, you know, in the bubbly cursive writing that was really familiar to me as, I mean, I'm sure it looked a a fair amount like the way I would sign my name, you know, I I signed my name as a nine-year-old. And then they said, and then write the year, and without doing any conscious math, I wrote the, you know, the correct year of um it would have been uh nineteen seventy-six, and I was struck by just this had invoked a part of my mind, it certainly seemed to invoke a part of my mind, which was um it was quite surprising that it was there to be invoked. And so mm-hmm. I've not done I've you know had a few experiences of, of hypnosis since then and, and really have not gotten into the research. On it at all, so yeah, I'd be very interested to to in, in you know further installment to hear what you think is most useful there, and if you have someone who you recommend to actually guide you know sessions in in hypnosis, whether it's for mitigating pain or you know making any behavioral change or any other purpose, I mean, how you think it would be best implemented in the waking up app, I'd love to have that conversation with you and and get any recommendations you have.
1: Yes, wonderful because here I, I had this course and that's given by the person I mentioned already, marie Femouville, but but it is it is in French and uh, how is her English? Yeah, well, I I think it it is good to have a, a native English speaker mm-hmm. because language is important there. Yeah. Another scholar is from Montreal, uh, Pierre Renville. A wonderful person uh, also but i would need to check in terms of you know having someone who would actually guide through because i do think it it is it is complementary and also within mind and life europe we recently i'm um, part of that and organized a workshop where well we invited these it's this uh, strong buddhist tradition there as you know these meditation experts to to actually experience hypnosis and and i I think it's it's wonderful to uh see the the benefits the added value of of both approaches so let me think and and come back to you for your specific question oh that's great
0: that's great well steven pleasure to connect
1: thank you so much